It's good to see you again, some of you since last night, some of you just uh, some of you this morning. We're going to be continue our study in Colossians, and so I invite you to turn to Colossians. We're going to continue through chapter 1 and, uh, and go a bit further and uh, linger to take a few minutes uh, looking at a part of this passage that uh, is perhaps a little more interesting than some Christians think about. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you in order to thank you for such a spectacular day. Father, we want to thank you for a faithful church. We are just so grateful and honored to be here at Third Avenue among brothers and sisters here. We want to thank you for giving us this Lord's Day and giving us this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you will increase our knowledge and that your glory will be increased by our being here. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We've been looking at this phenomenal passage, Christological passage from Colossians, and often referred to as a hymn, which I think is legitimate, particularly in its hymnic structure. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us that two things happen when there is a Holy Spirit-inspired uh, testimony to Christ. Uh, for one thing, you get doctrinal statements of incredible precision. And uh, the second thing you get, as the Holy Spirit worked through Paul, is language that can only be described as poetic and uh, structured as what could well be made into a hymn. It may already have been sung. But we look at this picking up on verse 21. Uh, just to remind ourselves, Paul's shift comes with the Father's activity through the Son in verse 13. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's the, what the Father has done. Thus we are saved. Thus we are Christ. Thus we are in the church. Through His redemption, we've received the, the forgiveness of sins. But then about Christ, this testimony, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there is the all things about creation. So in the all things, there are all things on heaven and on earth, all things created, all things created by him, and as we see here with the prepositions, not only by him, but uh, through him and for him. But then he is prior to all things, or preeminent, and in him all things hold together. But then there's another thing, and it's a different class of thing. Beginning in verse 19, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's where we ended last. This new kind of thing is the church, the body. And we are told that of this new thing, he is its head, and then he's preeminent over all things. So, it began with a testimony about the Father to the Son, a testimony of the Son, and then beginning in verse 21, and you. It's uh, very similar to the 
disjunctive formula that Paul will use, for example, in Ephesians, uh, but you. This is and you. So the attention now turns to us who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So now it turns to those who are the redeemed. After a hymn about the Redeemer, the word redemption already having been mentioned, now what of the redeemed? And you. So now we're going to be described. And uh, we're not described in such poetic language. We're described in prosaic language, but it's very graphic language. This is the Father redeeming through the Son, the Son bringing sinners unto himself, redeeming them for the forgiveness of sins, preeminent over all things in creation. And now we, we, well, we were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The key words there are alienated and hostile, first of all. And you know, this gets to a, a very radical misunderstanding of many people who either are Christians who are not well taught or they're not Christians and think they're Christians. The assumption on the part of many is that there's so many who are very close to God or, or very, very uh, in tune with God. The only way to actually be close to God is to be united to Christ. Because the great distinction is not between, say, two or three different parties, uh, three or four different parties, those who are God's enemies and those who are the redeemed, and then some middle ground. There isn't any middle ground. We are either united with Christ or we are alienated from Him. And it's a self-alienation. This is what we brought upon ourselves by sin. But you'll notice there's also the word hostility. And so, we are hostile to God. Now, we're going to look at a few interesting things today here, just in terms of church history, to kind of remind us why we are who we are, why we're members of this church. One of the uh, impulses of the Roman Catholic Church, and this has been true for a long time, has been to try to downplay this alienation, and in particular, the hostility. And so, if you compare Luther in the 16th century thundering about the reality of our sin and the reality of spiritual warfare, in which there are only really two options, which is to be God's friend or God's enemy, the only way to be God's friend is through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the time you get to the Reformed tradition and you get to the Synod of Dort with total depravity, it's just a reminder of the fact that our will and what we might call our personality, our character, is fatally flawed. The Catholic temptation, uh, largely aided and abetted by two things. One is the denial 
of, uh, of concupiscence being on the level of sin, and, and the other being a denial of total depravity, leaving the will, they would argue, unaffected by sin. It, it, it leaves Catholics in a position of believing that there's a vast number of people who are neither God's enemies nor his friends, but are more or less well-disposed and uh, may well be persuaded to move in the right direction. And, and this is just a reminder of, of the stark realities of the simple gospel, as was made clear in the Reformation. There are really only two conditions, there are really only two groups. Either you are united with the Son and thus reconciled with the Father, or we are alienated and hostile. The uh, early church sometimes struggled with understanding how all of this, say, systematically was to be understood, but came pretty quickly to the understanding that the apostolic preaching here reduces the options considerably. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and by the way, you notice the order there, we're alienated and hostile in mind, thus we do evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Beautiful expression of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So when we come to Christ by faith, by the Father's grace and mercy towards us in Christ, there is an exchange in such a way that Christ's own righteousness is imputed to us. This, again, was a preoccupation of the Reformers, and in particular, Luther. Luther understood that righteousness was required in order to be found acceptable to the Father. If one was going to be acceptable to the Father, one had to demonstrate righteousness. That then leads to an inescapable question, how much righteousness? And the only answer is perfect, unblemished righteousness. Well, there is no such righteousness to be found among human beings. As Luther said at one point, you know, you, can, you pile up all human attempts at righteousness and do one thing, what you have is one stinking heap. So it will take a perfect righteousness to satisfy God. And there's only one who has that per perfect righteousness. And we can't earn it, we can't deserve it. But it is given to us, it is imputed to us, and imputation is a legal term, meaning that the judge is fully aware that this is not our righteousness. He accounts it that way. It is accounted to us for righteousness. It's declared to be ours because God the Father, the holy judge, says, I will accept his righteousness as your righteousness. That's the only way we're saved. On the day of judgment, the only possible escape is that Christ's righteousness is accounted as our righteousness because we are His. It has been imputed to us. And you'll notice the end of the Ordo Salutis here. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, before the Father, in order to present us. So it's not just that we somehow sneak in the back door and uh, we have a good lawyer and uh, we actually do have a very good lawyer. We have a perfect advocate. But it's not like the Father's persuaded. The Father has already sovereignly determined all of this. But you'll notice that the final verdict is that when we are before the Father and found 
blameless and above reproach. Uh, and this is just so sweet because let's look at each other. There is no way that any one of us on our own could imagine going before the throne of grace blameless and uh, above reproach. You know, I hate to tell you this, but you're not blameless and above reproach this morning. Uh, if you committed no sin with the body, you certainly have with the mind. And if nothing else than the fact that our rebellious spirit and our wayward minds, uh, even when we're preparing ourselves for worship, uh, I think it's probably harder in families, beautiful families, all the little kids, they do not automatically get ready for church in the morning. Uh, on Sunday morning, it is just not the case that all of a sudden perfect peace depends upon, descends upon the family in such a way. Uh, you know, even just in the thinking about life and world before coming, the fact is that we are sinners, as Luther said on his deadbed, deathbed, it is true. All right. But there's an if that follows in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there's an if, and that raises a huge question. Okay, so how do we live with that if? If you continue, if you are steadfast, if you do not depart from the faith, if you do not commit apostasy. Clearly, this is not a warning about a particular sin, say a sin of the flesh. It's a warning against a particular sin, which is a theological or a doctrinal sin, which is abandoning the gospel as was revealed through the apostolic testimony. And that's the occasion of the letter. And not only this letter, but others as well. And we come to understand the church is in the perpetual position of being tempted to theological sin, tempted to theological error, to substitute the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel that leads to salvation, for something else. Now, clearly, this is to the church corporately, but it's also to individuals. And this leads to the question, it's central sometimes, regrettably and tragically, in our church discipline at a member's meeting. What do you do with someone who's departed from the gospel? They do. It happens. We're not supposed to be we're not supposed to be shocked and scandalized to being immobilized about this. We are to be shocked and scandalized at the pain and the hurt that comes by means of someone committing theological sin, apostatizing, leads to the question of how. How did that happen? And this is where the parable of the sower and the soils becomes so very important. It is absolutely important in our understanding of the gospel. It's absolutely important in our understanding of church discipline. There are four different soils, you'll recall. There's the path, and then there's the rocky soil, and, the, and then there's the, the, the thorn-infested, weed-infested soil. Then there's a the good soil. One of the signs of the, of the false profession is that the false professor shows immediate signs of growth. Immediately it sprouted up and showed signs of life. But when the sun comes out, it withers and dies. And uh, Jesus was very clear, even in telling the disciples, you're going to see this. You're going to see this pattern of response to the gospel. You know, elsewhere, the scripture tells us they went out from us because they were not of us. It is absolutely true. I am confident 
from the clear teaching of Scripture that those who are genuinely redeemed, those who have been regenerated, will never be unregenerated. The sad thing is that there are those who sow the short-term signs of regeneration but are not, in the end, found to be faithful or regenerate. They depart from the faith. So the main issue here is Paul more concerned directly with a church abandoning the clear teaching of the gospel for something that is sub-gospel. Always been a perpetual temptation, the occasion of this letter itself. You'll also notice this to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Nice words, stable and steadfast. And just to take the imagery further, not shifting from one thing to another, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And what about this gospel? It's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, wait just a minute. This is in Asia Minor. The gospel has not yet been preached everywhere. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean that the gospel has been preached everywhere. You know, there were, uh, there were some preachers in the medieval era who said that there was something lacking here, in, even in the New Testament era. There must have been preachers who had gone out into every place on planet Earth. That's just not what is here. Clearly, we have the Great Commission and the command to go, but this is the declaration of the gospel in all creation. It is more of a heavenly declaration. It is now, however, being manifested in this uh, earthly preaching. And then you'll notice again that Paul identifies himself as a minister of this gospel. Then beginning in verse 24, Paul speaks about himself. And he hasn't done this except in mentioning earlier in chapter 1 that he had heard about this church, and then identifying himself in the very beginning as an apostle of Christ by the will of God here it's a bit different. He's speaking of a role on behalf of the church at Colossae. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. There's a lot there. It's one of the mysteries of the Christian ministry that is revealed here. And that is suffering. Now, when it came to the Apostle Paul individually and to the apostles corporately together, there's a lot of suffering. In most cases, even suffering unto death. The strange thing about this passage is not that the Apostle Paul speaks of apostolic sufferings or the sufferings of a Christian minister through ministry. The strange thing is the second clause in which he says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So now wait just a minute. We talk about the completed perfect work of Christ. We, we talk about the fact that the, uh, the work of Christ on the cross, suffering on our behalf, redemptive suffering, that's a finished thing. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it. So what are these sufferings that are lacking? Well, not only in this passage, but in others we could consider, but centrally in this passage, it appears to make very clear that leadership in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will come with suffering on behalf of the church 
And that is a continuation of the sufferings of Christ for the church. That is to say that by the time Christ comes to claim his church, there will be much suffering having been experienced within the church, and in particular by those who would lead and minister to the church. There's just no way around it. Now, this is not lacking in terms of the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is indeed through Christ and through those whom Christ has appointed as leaders of the church that there is still this suffering. And Paul says, I am seeking by means of this suffering in my body to be filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. There's an ongoing pattern of affliction. The apostles were a part of it. All those involved in church leadership or Christian ministry are involved in it. And then he says the church, for the sake of his body, that is the church. And it's very easy for us to look at that and say, well, of course, that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the ecclesia, those who are called out. The church is the fellowship of the, of the redeemed. Yes, well, all that's obvious to us, and it's clear in the New Testament. But, you know, if you talk with Christians, especially of a certain age, you say, how did you come to Christ? Tell me about your church then. Well, it was back in Texas. And, uh, you know, I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ in ministry. I was baptized into the fellowship of this church. It was in Texas. Well, then what happened after that? Well, you know, I went to college in Boston. All right, did you join a church there? Yeah, joined, of course, joined a church there. It was a faithful part of this church, okay? And now we're in Louisville. And so where do you go to church? Third Avenue Baptist Church. My point is, we take this for granted. The church form or the church shape of Christianity, we take for granted. And, and especially in this church and in other churches with the renaissance of ecclesiology, there's a real sense of just kind of assuming this was normative for the church, obviously, in the first century. Well, it wasn't as obvious as you might think. That's why there's so much attention to the church and ecclesiology in the New Testament because they're having to live this out. Those who were members of the church in Colossae were in all likelihood never members of any other church on planet earth prior to becoming a member of that church. Prior to becoming a part of that church, they were likely in the world and outside of Christ. And so this is the church they know. And at this point, it appears that uh, in most places there is a church in the city. And uh, even where there may be multiple congregations in one sense, the Apostle Paul and the others will often refer to uh, even a collection of house churches as the church, a church. The point is here that Paul is personalizing this. He's about to enter a new dimension of the argument in Colossians, writing to these Christians, and having made, first of all, this incredible exposition of the saving work of Christ and the glory of Christ and the preeminence of Christ, he, he then turns to the reality of ministry and the reality of what's being faced by the church there in Colossae. 
He speaks of his own suffering on their behalf, suffering which comes to a minister of the gospel. And then he says that Paul became this minister according to the stewardship from God that was given. Here are the prepositions are again very important. Colossians has two sets of these prepositional series that are just pretty fascinating. They are incredibly easy to preach. It's almost as if in both of these places, the text is saying, preach this text exactly like this, okay? So just pay attention to the prepositions. All you have to do is understand the prepositions, follow the prepositions, you got your sermon. Follow the prepositions, you got the entire sequence. We saw it earlier. For by him, all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones are dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So those, the prepositions just say, okay, this is a this is a pile-driving prepositional series. You, you just follow. It's similar with of him and to him and through him be all things, to whom be glory forever in Romans chapter 11. Just follow the prepositions. Well, follow the prepositions in this second sequence. Paul speaks of being a minister of the church in verse 25. This church of which he became a minister according to the stewardship from God. Now, here it goes. It's like a gun firing that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, prepositions are very, very necessary units of language. There has to be something like a pronoun in every language system for rightful communication to take place. In the English language, based upon its linguistic roots, these prepositions are fairly short. Very, very important, and they were so in the Greek as well, in the main. But just notice this. It's the Apostle Paul. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to a stewardship. He received a, stu a stewardship from God. There's a calling from God, a vocatio, Luther would say a stewardship, a calling from God. Steward, by the way, the, the central issue here to remember is that a steward answers for the stewardship. The stewardship from God that was given, here are the prepositions, to me, for you, to make the Word of God fully known. So, this is true of the Apostle Paul and his relationship with the church at Colossae. In some sense, it's also true of every preacher or every pastor. You could say, first of all, just take the pastor. Just take the pastor of this church. He's been given a stewardship as pastor of this church. Why has he been given that stewardship? Is it, is it in order that, you know, he would be a religious professional here in this religious body? No, it's a stewardship of preaching. It's a stewardship of word, a stewardship of gospel. And it's not about the steward. Notice again, this ministry, this stewardship was given to Paul. It was given to me for you. 
So the ministry is on behalf of the church. It is for the sake of the church that the ministry exists. The Apostle Paul's apostolic ministry is not a self-serving reality. It is not self-referential. He was given this apostleship for the church. The stewardship was given to the apostle for the church, but also for a purpose, and that immediately follows, to make the Word of God fully known. So, translating it into our circumstance here, the ministry the Word is given to this church, it is assigned to the, the one who would preach. And the stewardship of preaching is given to that man for the church, not for himself, but for the church in order that the Word of God may be fully known. So, this, all that becomes just very, very important uh, it's, it's a humbling realization. It's also a grand realization. The, this is not a job. It's not a profession. It's a calling. It's, it's a stewardship. And yet it's not given to the church as a whole, as a universal responsibility, but to certain ones who are called. It's a stewardship that is defined by Scripture, and it's a stewardship that is for the church, for the purpose of making the Word of God fully known. Now, this is something else we often need to think about because in the 1970s, I was just reminded of this through a little rabbit hole I fell into this week. I've been involved in some things I would not call rabbit holes this week, but just once back from the convention, I, uh, I, I, was, I saw the name of someone, and what I remembered was that they played a major role in the small group renewal movement of the 1970s. And I know some of you are saying, well, I don't remember reading about that in American history. It's not in American history. Just in the history of American evangelicalism, there was this idea that, that because a part of what happened in the uh, radicalism of the 1960s was the suggestion that an authoritative teacher is oppressive by nature. That makes sense? So the Gramscian Marxist influence educational innovators said, we need to sideline the authoritative teacher and put in someone who will be an enabler of learning. And maybe that will require because if you have a group, so this is the idea, and I, I, was, I was thrown into this educational experiment when I was 13. Let me just tell you, it doesn't work. Uh, when I was 13, I was put in the school without walls and without rules, basically, where 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds are pretty much in charge. And we didn't have teachers, we had facilitators. Now, I'll tell you what facilitators don't do. They don't facilitate. It was a madhouse of 1960s liberalism put into a school, all right? And uh, one of the University of California Berkeley-esque statements about this change in pedagogy was, no more sage on the stage. What we need now is a guide on the side. <laughs> you know, knock, knock the man off the pedestal. We don't need an authoritative teacher. We don't need a... We don't need one with expertise. Power to the people, we'll just share. Now, remember, power to the people was to eighth graders. I think some of you have heard me perhaps give testimony of the school experience before because it was very formative. 
I went into the boys' room one time and smelled marijuana. Scandalized 13-year-old Southern Baptist. I wasn't sure what to do with it. There's some kid smoking marijuana in the bathroom. And uh, that was a much bigger deal, you might say, in terms of at least popular concern then than now. So I'm kind of in moral turmoil about what to do about this. I don't know. Am I supposed to report this? I don't know. When I'm passing out the bathroom and I pass one of my facilitators smoking a joint, (laughs) it was the people in charge, sort of, who were... But you know what? If you are trying to run a school with uh, no, basically very few rules and with no authority and with no walls, maybe you, maybe that leads to marijuana in the boys' room. Maybe that's the way that works, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but my point is that the church is given the opposite without any apology. This, this, I mentioned this rabbit hole I fell into, which is thinking about, you know, how, how did, how did the church resist this small group movement, very much the same thing. No more sage on the stage, just guide on the side. And Because it, it went like wildfire through so many denominations in the 1970s and even into the 1980s. And I'll tell you what, the churches that said, we're going to sideline preaching, what happened is they died. Uh, it turns out that God's people need to be fed and that that is given to the church as a stewardship. The, the idea of a preacher is not a church pragmatic discovery. It it is instead the pattern that God has given for His church, and the Apostle Paul is making that clear. I just think it's good we remember that this can get woefully confused. You go to other places, other churches, you won't find preaching like you find in this church. I heard somebody, thankfully in a context far, far away from our Baptist family, and someone said, yeah, he said, I've never heard a sermon over 18 minutes long. He said that as a matter of pride. You know, I, I did, my pastor, preacher, man, always delivers 18 minutes of something thoughtful. Gives you something to think about. Well, I mean, what would that look like here? 18 minutes of something to think about. We would assume someone had been body snatched. Uh, but it's, it's more than that. We come looking for the feeding by the preacher of God's Word. That doesn't happen. We're not even sure how to go home. There's something else in this passage just in the next few minutes I want us to look at. As Paul describes his preaching ministry, speaking of this gospel, speaking of his own sufferings, Speaking of the stewardship he's received, he says this, he says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I mentioned up front, there's kind of a little bomb that drops in this, and it's good for us to pay a bit of attention to it because it's easy to read over that and go, oh yeah, that's exactly what the gospel is. It's the mystery hidden and now revealed. Um. The word mystery doesn't mean to us what it would have meant to the people in Colossae. The word mystery is very much a part of our vocabulary 
The word mystery is not central to our culture. Not in the way it was. And not only in Colossae, not only in the the worlds of ancient Greeks uh, and Rome and Greek civilization and also the Far East, as you think about the Zoroastrians and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. But not only that, the Egyptians and what am I talking about? In the ancient world, mystery cults abounded. And in many cases, mystery cults were the elite of all religious groups. Let's look at Paul's language before we go any further with this. Notice he says here again, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his Saints. In the ancient world, the dimension of mystery was absolutely necessary to explain the cosmos because so much of it was, frankly, mysterious. The ancients were perplexed in all kinds of different ways, and virtually all the major ancient civilizations. They were perplexed by how to explain, first of all, what you might say, to use the words of Immanuel Kant, fast-forwarding to the Enlightenment, the two great mysteries are the starry heavens above and the moral life within. Okay, so there's an external mystery and there's an internal mystery. I think Kant's right, and I think going backwards in time to the ancients, it's clear they were perplexed by both. They were perplexed by the cosmos, They're trying to understand the cosmos. And one of the things we need to recognize is that it was virtually impossible in the ancient world, for very good reason, to believe that this was some kind of cosmic accident. Too many things work. Too many cycles are predictable. Too many processes are orderly. Too many things are beyond our understanding, but inexplicable is just that. And it's not just the cosmos, it's also, as Kant said, the moral life within. I I tell parents, this is just something that I think is really important for parents to know. You know, the crisis of adolescence is a crisis of biology, yes. It's a crisis of physical development, sexual maturity, yes. The the biggest crisis of adolescence is the crisis of complex analytical thinking. Thinking of which the six-year-old is not capable, but the 16-year-old can't avoid. The six-year-old thinks, but the 16-year-old thinks about thinking. There are very few seven-year-olds walking around as like reflexive existentialists. They just aren't. They're just not walking around, you know, goldfish in one hand. And then great questions about the mystery of life on the other. They have questions, but you'll notice their questions are often mechanical, right? Like, how do you do this? What was that? How, did, how was that made? And they're very easily satisfied with a mechanical answer. You you know, you have a 16-year-old thinking about the same thing. It's a completely different set of mental conditions. 
You know, there are many seven-year-olds in the middle of the night waking up unsure of their own existence. There isn't a 16-year-old on the planet who hasn't at some point in the middle of the night wondered, I wonder if I've invented all these people. My family, did I just dream them up? You know, do they really exist? Do I really exist? To be conscious of mysteries is to be susceptible to a mystery cult. The mystery cults are organized ways of saying, we can explain this. We can explain the cosmos. We can explain you. We can explain human behavior. We can explain why the sun appears to come up and and go down. We can explain to you why water is wet. We can explain to you the elementary principles of the universe. In almost every case, these were elitist like ancient Gnosticism, separating those who are in the know and know the mysteries from those who do not know the mysteries. But here's the other huge thing. When the Apostle Paul lands mystery here, or when Peter says we were not following carefully devised myths, it is the same thing. What they are saying is this. Here, Christianity is not a mystery cult, okay? So if you're looking for a thing you can join that when you join will give you an understanding of the cosmos as an insider, that is not the church. The church is actually the opposite. In the ancient mystery cults, you joined and you became an initiate and sometimes went through things we don't even want to talk about. In order to be initiated, the Canaanites had their own version of the mystery cults as well. All of these ancient groups had their own mystery cults, whether they were Egyptian or Babylonian or Assyrian or more accessible to us, uh, Greco-Roman. Later, by the way, uh, Indo-European. The one thing that was true about all those mystery cults is you weren't told the mystery till you joined. You weren't even told the mystery or the mysteries until you've been initiated. The Christian church is the opposite. That's why the Apostle Paul here is saying, we're not a mystery cult. We're here to declare the mystery. You actually come into the church on the basis of your profession of the knowledge of the gospel. You don't join the church in order that we take you back in a back room. You join the church, you go through an initiation trial, we think you're acceptable, and we send you in a room, and you come out knowing. It's just not the way it works. And you have in the New Testament, when you see the word mystery used like this, it should just kind of jump out at you and say, this is flipping the whole thing on its head. This is taking the idea of a mystery cult and saying, no, here's the way the gospel works. It was hidden for generations and is now revealed. And where is it revealed? Remember, to all creation. That's where you go back to say that this gospel that's been preached in all creation, that's what he's talking about. It's not a mystery cult. You don't know what we believe? We don't. We'll tell you what we believe. You want to know what the gospel is? It's what I've been trying to talk to you about. What do you know when you get in the church that you don't know before? Nothing, except more and more through the preaching of the word. But the gospel itself isn't hidden. It's not like you find out the real gospel only when you get inside. Okay, so we have to be really clear about that. And so there's some interesting things that go on here. And if you look at the architecture of this room, There are two massive things that are missing in this room. If you're looking at it from a position of, say, medieval Catholicism, now actually there are a lot of things missing. There's not a font for baptizing babies either, but 
that's not my concern at the moment. That, that's not here. But there are, two, there are two massive things that aren't here. Uh, one of them is an altar, and the other is a screen. Neither one of them are here. And yet, if you were to go to, uh, to worship in medieval Catholicism, you would find both the altar and the screen. And some of you say, well, there's an altar right there. No, it's not. That is not an altar. Nothing's ever been, no animal has ever been sacrificed on that altar. Uh, people put their coffee on that altar. It is not an altar. It's a communion table. That is not symbolic of an altar. That's a huge problem. I heard that when I was a kid. Absolutely false. That table is not symbolic of an altar. That table is symbolic of a table at which you eat. Does that make sense? Can someone close those? Can we? Thank you. Appreciate that. Um. So, the, the, so it's not an altar, but there's also not a screen. And so if you were going into a church of medieval Catholicism, that would be a big help. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you're going into a church of medieval Catholicism, it would be kind of dressed up so it looks like a mystery cult. And, and there would be lots of things that would be going on, but you wouldn't even know what they mean. You wouldn't even know that you're a participant because you're not. So the Roman Catholic Mass is done by the priest on behalf of the people, okay? So it's like you're just there. You attend the Mass, and, and at some point you may be invited to half of communion. But the point is, it is a mystery. Until the liturgical reforms after Vatican II, in the main, the priests turned back to the congregation, turned their backs to the congregation in order to perform the Mass so that it was hidden, okay? So, and then the screen, often in a cathedral or in a large church called a rude screen, was to separate the altar from the people so that you couldn't actually even see what was going on back there. Like, it, like the Mass is a mystery cult. And in medieval Catholicism, the language was, of course, and this is, again, true until the liturgical reforms after Vatican II and the Roman Catholic Church, the language of the Mass was exclusively Latin in the Latin Rite Church, which is 99% of Catholicism. And the people who were there in the congregation, not only could they not really see what's going on, not only were the priest's backs turned to them at the high point of worship, the, the priest turns the back but the other thing is they spoke a language people didn't understand. This is where the term hocus-pocus comes from. Because in the missal formula for the Mass, when it comes to the bread, the priest would say, hoc es corpum est, hoc es corpum est, hoc es corpum est. This is my body. But to you know, medieval Germans... The priests were mumbling, keeping their voice low. They turned their back, and it sounded like they were saying, hocus-pocus, hocus-pocus. And the very fact that hocus-pocus means mystery to us now, right, like a mysterious incantation, that's an indication of how biblical worship had been lost. In the Reformation, they took the screens down. 
And uh, in the Reformation, especially in Geneva, the Reformed branch, they actually just moved the altar in the main out of the center, and if not, then they pulled the pulpit forward. That's what happened in Lutheranism as well. In many of the Lutheran churches, the altar was simply, and remember, they're often just taking an actual building and kind of reforming the building. If they didn't move the altar, then they moved the pulpit out in front of the altar and made the pulpit more prominent. Uh, in the Genevan uh, Reformation, the same thing. The, the pulpit is brought out, and eventually, by the time you get to nonconformity and the Baptists, the, uh, the pulpit's in the center. And so I just want to help us to understand that the use of the word mystery here by the Apostle Paul is to make very clear it's the opposite of a mystery cult. You don't know what we believe. You don't have to join. We put you through an initiation. If we like you, then we take you in a back room, light a candle, put on dark garments, speak in low voice, and tell you the mystery. No, Paul said, that's what I've been preaching to you idiots. You understand the spirit in which I say that. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is not a mystery hidden. This is a mystery revealed. The church is not a mystery cult. The gospel is an oxymoron. It's a mystery publicly declared. Anyway, all that's right here in this passage, and I find it absolutely fascinating. And I would like to think we can at least imagine what it was like for people who've been surrounded by mystery cults to find out they're not part of one. Nor are you, nor are we. We do have the stewardship of preaching the mystery now revealed. Father, we come before you just to thank you for this passage. As we get ready for worship, we pray that you will ready our hearts to hear once again the mystery revealed publicly. It'll be to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.